A judge ruled that prosecutors can collect DNA and fingerprints from Joseph D'Angelo, who is believed to be behind at least a dozen killings and more than 50 rapes during the 70s and 80s. You might not recognize the name Joseph James D'Angelo, but I bet you've heard of the Golden State Killer. A genealogy database connected the dots between the California serial killer and the former cop who committed the crimes. But what does that have to do with our hiker? He was tracked down in part by detectives who used genealogy websites like Ancestry and 23andMe. They don't know exactly which one it was, but it has a lot of people wondering what exactly you give up when you spit and send your DNA to those sites. The Collier County Sheriff's Office, under the direction of Sheriff Kevin Rambosk, presents Sworn Statement, a podcast exploring local cases and public safety issues, all unfolding right here in Southwest Florida. I'm your host, Christine Gill. This is the second of three episodes exploring the case of the deceased hiker. If you haven't already, go back and listen to the first episode so that this one makes sense. Episode two is called Leave No Trace. We last left off with the first break in the case. When the hiker's body could not be identified immediately, detectives released a composite sketch which led to a tip. The man was a thru-hiker who had passed through the Florida panhandle as recently as January. About six months later, he was found dead in the Florida Everglades, near the end of the Florida Trail. Now I want to take you through what detectives did with that information in an effort to find the hiker's real name. But first, let's take a look at how missing persons databases work. Law enforcement has a few different databases at its disposal, which we can check for matches in cases like this, where we have someone's biometrics, their height, weight, hair color, etc., and some more specific information, such as the presence of tattoos or scars, and then some identifying information, like fingerprints and dental records. These databases are only accessible to law enforcement, but a few are public. The one most people are familiar with is called NamUs, which is government-funded. NamUs is an online database for missing, unidentified, and unclaimed persons cases, and it enables us to search against from the missing person side to the unidentified side. Carrie Sutherland is the Regional Program Specialist for NamUs, overseeing Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas. In addition, it has a public user interface, that allows families to input cases and also search for their loved ones on um, either side as well. The site currently lists a little more than 15,000 missing persons and about 12,500 unidentified persons. Collier County has 43 unidentified persons cases listed through NamUs. The oldest was a body found in 1972. The most recent is our hiker. The thing about these databases is they aren't comprehensive, which means they're only as good as the data that's been uploaded. It's that way for a variety of reasons. If a missing person is never reported, that case doesn't get uploaded. Sometimes an adult case won't meet a state's criteria for investigation. Other times a case is stuck between jurisdictions and neither jurisdiction will upload that case. And the biggest problem is that NamUs is still a voluntary database in most states. A few states have pending legislation that would require that cases get uploaded there, too. 
In the meantime, the National Crime Information Center, or NCIC, is another database run by the FBI, which is only available to law enforcement. This database has different requirements for uploading across state lines, so profiles for unidentified cases are always checked against those as well. If all cases ideally were entered in nameless, all missing and unidentified, we'd have a lot more cases that, you know, we'd have success stories on. But until then, we just hope as many cases are entered as possible. While most of the information on NamUs is public, law enforcement is the only group with access to each individual's forensic information. So in our case, the hiker's fingerprints and dental records have been uploaded and attached to his profile. But as a member of the public, you can't view those records. But that's why we've been able to quickly eliminate certain individuals who tipsters have found through NamUs. We can do this because even though both men might have the same height or hair color according to that part of the public database, their fingerprints and dental records don't match on the back end. The same goes for anyone with a tattoo or an obvious scar. Our hiker did not have any ink. He did have a scar, though. He has a linear scar across his abdomen. I know what you're thinking. What about DNA? You know, deoxyribonucleic acid, the stuff that Peter Thomas waxed poetic on in forensic files. The local police obtained DNA samples from over 1,000 men. A brand new DNA test. A perpetrator's DNA. DNA test confirmed. I am so glad you asked. Mainly because I want to clear this up. First off, DNA testing results are pending in this case. Samples were sent from the medical examiner's office to the University of North Texas earlier this year, but they can take an additional six months to a year to process. A lot of that has to do with the backlog of work at UNT, and criminal cases are given priority. But here's the thing. Even once DNA testing comes back, all we get is a profile. We still need something to match it to. So unless the hiker has been reported missing and his DNA is available through a database, the sample won't match to anything. Of course, there's another way that DNA is being used these days, in genealogy testing. A lot of folks have chimed in on Facebook and in online threads about this case to point out that the Golden State Killer case was solved using a genealogy database. So why don't we just upload the hiker's DNA into one of those databases, find his family, and then reach out? The answer is we can and we can't. Here's Lori Napolitano. She's Chief of Forensic Services for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. One thing probably needs to be made clear, there's two different types of DNA testing. There's the traditional DNA testing that we've done for years and years when someone's arrested or someone is missing. And we, on a missing person, we can get DNA, let's say, from family members. On When someone's arrested, their DNA goes into our CODIS national database. It's offenders and missing persons. So that's the type of DNA testing that the crime lab would do on a suspect sample or on identified deceased person. That is a completely different type of DNA sample or DNA profile that gets developed for the ancestry type testing. They, they come from the same person, but it's like a hand and a foot. They're completely different. You can't compare them. So this testing, when we talk about genetic genealogy, Golden State Killer, that is a different type of test. It's the same test that people do in Ancestry and 23andMe, but it's new to law enforcement to use it in this way. Sites like 23andMe and Ancestry.com have made it a policy not to work with law enforcement in an effort to protect the privacy of its users. 
So when you hear about detectives solving cases with genealogy, it's usually through a third-party database called GEDmatch. The only uh, database that we have to use is GEDmatch, who, after the Golden State Killer, they had a privacy policy that always told people who uploaded their DNA there that it could be used for other purposes, but after the Golden State Killer, they publicly announced they would work with law enforcement. And now every day that you log in to GEDmatch, you get a login after the login screen, you get a message reminding you that your DNA could be used by law enforcement and also a link to remove it if you don't like it. But it is very different than Ancestry and 23andMe and what we'll call the commercial testing companies. GEDmatch doesn't test any DNA. It's strictly a database of DNA profiles of people who choose to put their DNA there. They may have tested with Ancestry or tested with 23andMe, and then they get the DNA from the company they tested with. They're able to download it to their computer, and they choose to upload it to GEDmatch. If you aren't familiar with the Golden State Killer case, I'll summarize. The moniker was given to a serial killer who murdered 12 women and raped more than 45 in California suburbs between 1976 and 1986. Just last year, detectives who were still working on the case 40 years later uploaded a DNA sample from one of the crime scenes into GEDmatch. The results provided a common ancestor for the suspect, and using that information, law enforcement was able to build a family tree. From there, they were able to zero in on an individual within the family who was male and who lived in the area of the crimes when they were committed. It's important to note that even after narrowing things down to one suspect, law enforcement still had to get a DNA sample from that individual to compare to the crime scene samples. This new ability is thrilling for law enforcement, but terrifying for privacy advocates. Keep in mind that the Golden State Killer did not upload his own DNA into GEDmatch. A relative likely uploaded his or her own DNA. So when you agree to the site's disclaimer about how your DNA might be used, you're also making that choice for people that you're related to, who might never have spit into a test tube. Ethical debates aside, GEDmatch is not a one-stop shop for unsolved cases. So for this type of genetic genealogy testing, it just generates a lead. It is not the same type of testing we do in the crime lab where we identify it to a specific person who's been arrested, for example. That type of testing, traditional DNA testing that we do in a crime lab, that can lead you directly to a single person with a single scientific test. Genetic genealogy gives the investigator another lead, just like a tip off of a tip line, just like a video camera where they see cars and they run tag numbers and they develop leads that way. So it's a lead generator like a photo lineup might be. If you get a suspect out of a genetic genealogy lead, the law enforcement agency would still have to get a DNA sample from that suspect, send it to the crime lab, and get a match to the crime scene sample, just like every other case is being solved through crime lab DNA. Down the road, this type of testing is likely to play a bigger and bigger role in law enforcement, whether or not it can help us to identify our hiker. I think our hope is that we won't have cases or as many cases that ever go cold again. Unidentified deceased persons can hopefully get their identity determined very quickly. Families can get answers to, to the whereabouts or what happened to their loved one quicker with this.
Okay, so now that you understand what our limitations are in this case when it comes to databases and DNA, I'll lay out what detectives did instead to try to identify this hiker. Remember Kelly Fairbanks? She's the trail angel who connected the dots between the composite drawing and Mostly Harmless. Once I had talked to the detective, the first thing I did was went on Facebook group for our through hikers, and I posted the composite in his picture and let them know that they believe that it's him. Did he, you know, ask any questions? Did he talk to anybody about his real name, where he's from, anything personal? And I started tagging the hikers, and then a couple of the other moderators started tagging the hikers, and we just tagged everybody so they would be aware that they needed to pay attention to this particular post. And I think there ended up being over 168 comments on this post where everybody shared what they knew, pictures they had taken, so on and so forth. But again, at the end of it all, there was really no new information about him. We got tons of tips from the hiking community once folks realized that this man was mostly harmless. They told us that he was living in New York and working in IT before he started the hike. They had heard that he might have been born in Louisiana, and he had his sights set on the Keys, but no one who met him learned his real name. Kim Cherney is a senior criminal research investigator in our homicide division. I looked at all of the evidence that was at the scene, like the tent, uh, the jacket, notebooks, anything that might have some value to try and identify him. I talked to the company that manufactured the tent. They were able to tell me when it was manufactured, but couldn't tell me where it was sold. Someone had given us information. He came from New York. So since he was in Naples, I looked at the hiking trails, which would be the Appalachian Trail, all the way through the Penhody and the Florida Trail. And I made contact with one of the outfitters who said that the tent that he had was not a, a normal tent. It's not something that's seen on the trail, that there were a few people that sold those. Well, I had already gotten information on, like I said, when it was manufactured from California, from Brooks Range, which is the company. And then I contacted an outfitter in Georgia. And the person I spoke with, which was Bob, he said that he believed that he had sold that tent to our individual and gave me a date of when it was sold. My name is Bob Gabrielson, and I'm the proprietor of the Top of Georgia Hiking Center in North Georgia, um, near Dick's Creek Gap on the Appalachian Trail. We're at mile 69 from the uh, southern end of the trail. I'd say we probably see a few thousand hikers a year. There are a lot of people hiking the trail that are basically using it as a pilgrimage, a therapy of sorts. Um, people are hiking off um, lost marriages, war, war memories, um, illnesses, uh, things like that, uh, trying to find themselves after college and after retirement. Everybody is sort of in the same boat. It seems they're all on some sort of transition. You know, they're getting out of school, and what's my career going to be? Or, all right, it's near the end of my life, and now I'm retiring, and what am I going to do? And I better do this quick while my knees still work. Um, so, uh, you know, when something like this that we're going to be talking about happens, um, it's unusual in, in what's happened in the non-identification, but it's actually not as unusual in the drama of it and the mystery of it as one might think for us. 
When Bob's staff heard from Kim Cherney, they started looking through their transactions to see whether Mostly Harmless had stayed in their hostel or purchased his tent from their store. When I saw the thing go out online um, of the individual's picture, I immediately recognized his face. I have a really good memory for faces, but of course, I can't always place a face. Was that a hiker? Is that a friend of my ex-wife's? Is that somebody who gave me onion rings through a window? But the thing that got me right away was his gear, his backpacking gear. His jacket that he was wearing, a Brooks Range jacket, and his tent that they showed, his yellow Brooks Range tent. Um, Nobody along the trail, as far as I know, sells those. It's like a $300 tent. It's technically a two-person tent. I call it the condo because it's so big, but it's really light. It has a lot of room, and so you and the dog or you and your deer can get in it. I did find it interesting that he bought uh, a tent like that, which is a pretty big mountaineering tent um, that we had a hard time selling at the tail end of his hike. Um, But he said he was going to keep hiking on, He purchased it with cash, it must have been. On paper, I can't be definitively sure, but it's just different. It it is such an unusual (laughs) mountaineering gear. When when I saw that, I thought, wow, he was here. In combing through their records and talking with other thru-hikers, Bob pieced together that Mostly Harmless had likely stayed in his hostel as well. You can't book a room with your trail name, so Bob was hopeful that the name listed in his records would end the search for detectives. I'm looking at one of the sheets here. The first night he stayed here on the 22nd of November, calling himself Ben Bellamy. There were two other people here. Um, So it was pretty easy to find out that it wasn't the other two. Um, And then we just backtracked a little bit and, you know, found out what he said his name was and what his trail name was. Detectives determined that Ben Billamy was likely an alias. The name doesn't track back to anyone who was missing or anyone who met his biometrics. Called again. Uh, apparently he stayed here on 11 and then we were closed the next day for Thanksgiving, and then he was here for the 11 and 11 probably bought that gear right before he left. Then got his picture taken 40 miles south of here at Mountain Crossings. Matt Mason works at Mountain Crossings, a full-service outfitter and hiker hostel in North Georgia. The shop is also the last stop for hikers along the Appalachian Trail. And Matt said that most hikers are thrilled to be nearing the finish line, so he usually strikes up a conversation. Long-distance hikers stick out very, very easy. It's very easy to identify them. They do not look like they drove a car up here. They're, you know, dirty, they're smelly, their hair is greasy. They have a glazed-over look in their eyes, Uh, especially folks that have uh, walked a large portion of the Appalachian Trail like Denham has. He said that he'd heard there's a way to connect the Appalachian Trail to the Florida Trail. And coincidentally, I had just been researching that route 
you get to Springer Mountain in North Georgia. You then uh, continue on to the Benton Mackay Trail for, I think it's 40 miles. Then you uh, tie into the Pinhoti Trail, which is a 300-mile trail that goes through, like, North Georgia all the way down to uh, kind of central-ish Alabama. And that follows, that continues to follow the Appalachian Range and goes to the southernmost point of the Appalachian Mountains. Matt mentioned a free online guidebook that mapped the connections between trails. But Denham wasn't carrying his cell phone. He asked if the shop could print the guide for him instead. The map ended up being about 40 or 50 pages single-sided, so they charged him a few bucks and called it even. When he went to pay for the maps and the data set, he pulled out of his wallet, and I mean, it is flush with cash. I mean, it is just thick with cash. And so, yeah, I, I took that photograph. It, he was kind of hesitant about um, taking the photograph, and I was like, hey, man, you know, it's, it's not a big deal, you know, like, and people do decline it. In the photo, which they posted on Instagram December 2nd, 2017, Denim is wearing his Brooks Range winter jacket and a baseball cap. His beard is coming in gray and black, but it's not as wild as it would become in later pictures. He's smirking a bit beneath it, mouth closed, those perfect teeth hidden from view. In each hand, he's holding a map. The guide the shop printed is in a plastic bag. He stares calmly into the camera against the backdrop of trees that have lost their leaves. Matt and his boss, Jason, looked back through their Instagram account and got the date for the photo they posted of Denim. Then, estimating the cost of the map and some food items they believe he purchased, they looked back through their transactions for that day. They sent some credit card numbers to detectives, but none panned out. Like Bob, they remember him paying with cash anyway. Detectives believe that Denim started going by Mostly Harmless at some point in Alabama. He visited mountain crossings on December 2nd, then met Kelly Fairbanks in Crestview, Florida, at the end of January. Then, in mid-April, a trail angel named Mike Gromley ran into Mostly Harmless in Big Cypress National Preserve. Detectives believe this is the last person Mostly Harmless made memorable contact with before his body was discovered July 23rd, just a few miles away. Mike met Mostly Harmless just outside the Seminole Indian Reservation, which is within the preserve. Probably talked um, 20 to 30 minutes um, along the roadside in the uh, Seminole Indian Reservation. Um, but my feeling uh, about Mostly Harmless was that, man, this is a guy I'd like to get to know. You know, he was really nice, well-mannered, and uh, um, polite. I'd like to hike with this guy a little bit if I had the chance. He was carrying about 50 pounds on his back, and... Uh, that's a big pack load uh, when you're walking in 85-degree temperatures. He had mentioned that um, he still had winter clothes with him. Uh, man, I said, <laughs> why are you carrying, you know, some of that stuff back home? And um, I even offered to him to uh, to take his winter clothes off of him and mail them back, but he declined. So if he was trying to stay anonymous, uh, that would be uh, one giveaway if he gave me an address to mail something to we had discussed that he was going to hike all the way to uh, at least what we call the southern terminus of the Florida National Scenic Trail, which
which would have been on Highway 41, uh, the Tamiami Trail at the Oasis Visitor Center. And he had talked about even going on down to Key West, which is part of what they call the uh, Eastern Continental Trail. And, you know, there was enough time there where he could have done all that and hiked back um, to finally end up um, where they uh, actually found him. But, we, you know, nobody seems to know if he went all the way or if he just went to the campsite some five miles from where we talked, and that's where he stayed for two or three months. That's it. Detectives couldn't confirm any contact with Mostly Harmless in the Keys after April, and they couldn't find much about Denham's journey north of Virginia. The goal would have been to track him to his starting point, or to link him to a credit card transaction along the way. Absent of that, we're just stuck. There's a rule among hikers and outdoor enthusiasts in general that says leave no trace. It means that you should clean up your campsite, your food supplies, and the fire pit, and basically leave nature the way you found it. But in a lot of ways, it applies to how Mostly Harmless kept his identity under wraps as he hiked the trail. It's difficult to estimate, but our detectives have received at least 50 unique tips in this case. Dozens of others have come in repeating leads that we've already exhausted. And each of these tips is thoroughly vetted, even the ones that seem unlikely. One tip we had was for a guy who was a hiker, and he he hiked all the time, him and his girlfriend. And so I was trying to find him, so I went online. I found where she had posted that she was going on a hike with him when she had requested leave. So I contacted the employer. The employer had her call me back, and she told me, no, I just came back from the hike. My boyfriend's still out there. I'm fine. He's fine. You know, it's not him. So at least she contacted me and let me know because there's no way I can find him if if this guy is hiking on the trail to say, you know, make sure that he is safe. So we want to make sure that whoever they say it might be, that they are actually alive and safe. Detectives have done something like this for each tip, and none have panned out. But Kim hopes this case can be solved, eventually. He deserves to be buried. His family deserves to know if he has family. So that's my kind of my ultimate goal is to, to get that done. I just feel like they, they need to be identified. I need to do everything that I can do to, to potentially help them be identified. So that's really what my passion is. And yeah, I would love to be able to do that for some others, but yeah, I don't know how many, how many are going to be solved. The District 20 medical examiner could not do an interview for this podcast, but the office did explain what happens to a body in a case like this. Unidentified remains cannot be cremated until all examinations are complete and all leads are exhausted. Until then, his body will remain in storage. Every day I try to think about what else can I do, you know, to get the information out there. I'm just, it's, I'm at a loss. I'm thinking maybe once somebody reports him missing, you know, unfortunately. A lot of folks I've interviewed have said, you know, someone has got to be missing this man. But to be frank, it's possible that no one is missing him. Maybe he was single. Maybe he was estranged from his parents or grew up an only child. Maybe he worked from home and quit his job before his hike. And maybe the people who do love him, who keep in touch occasionally, haven't yet realized that he's gone. Yeah, that's the other thing is, yeah, they don't know that he's gone. He could have told somebody, yeah, I'm going to go work overseas or, you know, I'll be back in two years or whatever. I, I don't know. 
until we identify him and can backtrack, it's, it's a mystery. I don't know. Which is why we're doing this podcast. Here's Kelly Fairbanks again. It's going to have to go outside the hiking community at this point, I believe, because I think everybody that, that knew something did come forward in one way or another and, and contributed what they had. Next time on Sworn Statement. He just seemed calmer. He seemed at peace with what he was doing. If you have a tip that you believe could solve this case or any other in Southwest Florida, call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-780-TIPS. Sworn Statement is a production of the Collier County Sheriff's Office. It's produced, written, and recorded by me, Media Relations Specialist Christine Gill.